one hates to say predictable and expected things when one begins to speak, but one says them because they are expected and predictable. And they must be said just to, to do right by an occasion. Uh, first of all, some of you have heard me say this before over the past 21 or so years, that it's a privilege to be in this pulpit. This is a particular pulpit. I love every pulpit, even churches that don't have a pulpit. I love it. The pulpit is not simply a piece of furniture. The pulpit is something in your heart that says this is a sacred place. And I rejoice in this pulpit particularly. I rejoice, secondly, in the occasion we're celebrating uh, through the remainder of uh, this uh, school week, today, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, with guests after that on Friday, to rejoice that uh, something has been done here that was overdue, I'm sure. I don't know whose idea it was for Charles Wesley's statue to be here, but whoever it was, God bless them. Uh, they did a right thing. Uh, we who call ourselves Methodist or Wesleyan in any heritage at all confess that we are indebted not simply to John Wesley for his organization and his preaching, but to Charles Wesley for whose theology lives on and who does it by what we're going to talk about tomorrow a bit, the matter of singing our theology. So, yes, it is a privilege to be with you today. Everybody sings, including some who can't carry a tune. Everybody has something in them that wants to sing, even if they don't. Some keep silent everywhere but in the shower. But they know that somewhere, sometime, whether anybody hears them, something must be put into music. This, you see, is part of our genetic heritage from our creation. When God explained to Job what was going on in his universe, he told him that the morning stars sang together at the creation. Well, that established the tradition. There would always be music in this universe. The point is, of course, that music is not guaranteed to stay good or to be good. Music, like all the rest of God's gifts, is susceptible to human nature, human degradation, human aspirations. And so music sometimes does not find a good theme. That's too bad. Does not find a good way of expressing its theme. That too is bad. But music nevertheless is going to happen. If people won't sing of love, they'll sing of lust or even of hate. If people do not have a praise in their hearts to God and to the purposes of God and to the love of life and of God, they'll sing songs of despair or ugliness or of destruction. We, however, insist on singing. Therefore, we are very, very much indebted to and in danger of those people who give us our music, the people who compose it, the words, and the music. Uh, 300 years or more ago, a Scottish man uh, looked at the world of his time, and he said, 
if I could write the ballads of a nation, I would not care who wrote the laws. What do you mean? The ballads, of course, are the songs that people sing about life, the stories they sing. And he felt that if he could write those ballads so that people would sing what he was writing, the laws would take care of themselves because people aren't driven by laws. They're driven by what they sing. It's an important thing, therefore, to know what a people sing and to wonder what we can do about what people sing when songs are that powerful. Well, I'm here today and again tomorrow to talk to you about a man who shaped the singing, actually, of a nation and who replaced so much of the ugliness of misshapen songs with great songs because of what the power of God was doing through him. The story of this songwriting begins on May 21, 1738, when Charles Wesley, uh, an Anglican priest, a graduate of Oxford, a brilliant thinker, a bit of a poet, but a man who was desperate about the confusions of his life, was sick again. In our day, we'd probably say he was psychosomatically ill. It's certainly the case that a lot of his trouble was in the struggles of his own soul, the misery that he was going through, and he couldn't get out of it. He had been a failure in a great enterprise of his life, and now he wasn't finding his way as he had hoped to do. So on this Sunday morning, he's ill, and the servant girl speaks the voice of the Lord and has to confess that she said it because people thought that it was a voice from heaven, and he was healed, and he came to new life in Christ. He rejoiced in what had happened to him. Two days later, he wrote a poem that he wanted to sing. This was not a surprising thing for him to do. His father had loved poetry forever, and his father, living in that desolate parish in Epworth, England, kept writing poems and hoping that somebody would want them never knowing that he was raising a son who would write thousands of poems that would still be sung hundreds of years later. So Charles was raised with poetry around him, and he began to write a poem to describe what had happened to him two days before. Then a strange thing happened. As he was writing it, his conscience smote him, and he said to himself, if I write poetry like this, it will make me proud. Now that's a great hazard that we'll be made proud. Usually we have to worry about it most when we aren't worried about it. And he therefore had something going for him in that he was afraid that he might be proud. Might be proud of the thing he was writing down. Well, his, a young man of the Bray family, not a very literate young man, just an average poor young man of that poor day, told him that that was not God's word to him, that God wanted him to write his poem. And so he wrote the poem, the story of what had happened to him two days before. The next day, his brother John was attending unwillingly an evening prayer meeting 
on Aldersgate Street with a group of Moravians, and that night his heart was strangely warmed. He was so excited about it that, of course, he ran with the group with him to give the good news to Charles. Charles, to the best of our expectations, took out this very poem that he had written, and they sang it then in celebration of what had happened to John. Listen to a little bit of this poem. Incidentally, some of you here may have heard that I discourage my students from using notes when they preach. Uh, and I do that, indeed. Uh, but I always tell my students also, when you're going to quote something, and you want people to have confidence in what you're quoting, read it. So I'm going to obey what I teach. <laughs> Some of the time, at least, you know. Here's what he wrote. Where shall my wandering soul begin? How shall I all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death and sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire. How shall I equal triumph's rays or sing my great redeemer's praise? That was the beginning of this whole idea of music that would shake and shape Great Britain within a generation. And it happened because he had had an experience with God, and now he had put it into poetry. The hymns of Charles Wesley, I would say to you again and again, are a kind of testimony service set to music. He is again and again celebrating the faithfulness of God in life, and he celebrates it then with a tune to go with it so that we can sing it. So it was that they sang it that day. And with it, they began to establish what was going to be a great movement. It was a great movement, of course, because of the wonderful uh, organizing abilities of John Wesley, the passionate preaching of Wesley, the vision they had for a troubled nation and a troubled world. But it never would have happened in its fullness if it hadn't been for the music. Without Charles Wesley's songs, we wouldn't have had the Methodist revival. What was it that made Charles Wesley's hymns become so much a part of the people of England? And then for that music to go on to America and to build up a church in America as well, so that in America, within one or two generations, Methodism, the unknown group in America, became the largest single religious body in the nation. I tell you that and I mention that to you because I think really deep inside that if we could have kept singing Charles Wesley's hymns and their followers following hymns with the integrity of the first persons who sang them. And if we had gotten some of the preaching that those poor, inadequate, untrained preachers of Methodism first delivered, and if we could have had the body of prayer that supported those people, we would today still be transforming America instead of wondering if we're going to lose our existence as a denomination. 
we need to keep the glory God gave us in a gospel, a message that you just have to sing because it is too real to simply put down in one, two, three fashion unless you can also do it with a kind of flourish of your soul that comes with a song. Now, what was the secret of Wesley's music? The secret has been described by uh, Hal Luckock and Paul Hutchinson two generations ago as the secret of their, uh, well, they're using the first person pronoun singular. Uh, let me read it to you. Note the pronouns, he said, these men said. Wesley started the Methodist singing personal pronouns, and that was not what made his hymns, and that was what made his hymns a turning point in English history. What do you mean by first person plural nouns, or first person singular nouns? Well, listen to the verse I just read to you from that original hymn of Charles. Listen, where shall my wondering soul begin? How shall I all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death and sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire, how shall I equal triumphs raise or sing my great redeemer's praise? I, my, me. And take the song we sang this morning, sometimes considered a kind of theme song of Methodism, and the first one in every Methodist hymnal except one for over 200 years. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Or think what we sing here uh, when we say, and can it be that I, that I, now someone says that's very inappropriate, that's very egotistical. No, no, it's very humbling that God should care about me, that I should matter to God. That's the most humbling thing I can imagine, and it puts all of us in our place. But the great thing about it was that they were singing in experience. They had met God, and they had to sing it in the first person singular because it had happened to them. This was not a studied out theology. This was a living fact of their lives. This was not something they had developed over a period of time in their concentrated study. It was something that smote them in their need, personally addressed to them. And so they began to sing, first person, singular. That marks the hymns. Luckock and Hutchinson said that there were other great songwriters in that period, certainly Isaac Watts, and just as surely, Doddridge and Cooper. Their poetry was as good as Wesley's, but Wesley got this first-person witness in his songs. He knew what he was singing about. He knew it because God had taken charge of his life. He then proceeded to tell that story again and again in the first-person realm. Uh, specifically, 
he wrote a lengthy poem, 14 verses. Incidentally, a lot of his hymns were like that and were cut down gradually to four or six verses. 14 verses, a poem titled Wrestling Jacob. Uh, Isaac Watts, who left us with a lot of wonderful hymns, said that he would have sacrificed all the hymns he wrote if he could have written that one poem, Wrestling Jacob. It's an act of humility on Watts's part to say that, but it also is, of course, at the same time, a demonstration of the kind of thing that, John, that Charles Wesley was doing when he told his story. What Charles Wesley did was to take the story of Jacob, which was read as our scripture lesson of the morning. Jacob, who's been a not very reliable person, a not very admirable man, that God has wanted and God has kept a hand on, and came at last to a night when he knew very well that the next day he might be executed by his own brother, whom he had robbed years before. It brought him to a place of absolute necessity, and he went alone to be alone, and in his aloneness, a stranger came. Charles Wesley, reading that story, put himself in Jacob's place. This is good Bible reading, it's good preaching. It's good Bible reading when you're reading any of the stories of our faith in the Holy Scriptures to put yourself alongside the person in this story and see how their story is your story. And he saw very well that Jacob was his story. That Jacob, in his fear that night, went to be alone. He'd already made all the political preparations for the next day in the hope that he could forestall disaster. But in spite of that, he was passionately terrified. And then a stranger came. And the stranger threw himself on him and tried to destroy Jacob, or so it seemed to Jacob. Well, indeed, any of us who've ever met God with any reality have thought there were times when God intended to destroy us. And he wrestles with us because he is trying to destroy something in us that we think is more important than it is. And so the angel, that stranger unknown, wrestled, wrestled with Jacob. Jacob at last said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And the stranger said, tell me your name. We never get our business done with God until we tell God our name. Jacob's name was Cheat, heel grabber. I don't know what your name is. I have some notions of my name, but I won't tell you. I just know that I've had to say those names to God so I could do business with God. Because there is a point at which we have to say to God, Yes, that's my name. And then Jacob, encouraged that he'd spit it out, Jacob said then, now tell me your name. Audacious character that he was. And the stranger said, I won't tell you my name. And he touched Jacob's limb so that he limped 
from then on, the rest of his life. It was a wonderful inconvenience for the rest of his life. It reminded him of the night he met God and all was changed. So Charles Wesley tries to tell this story. And uh, let me read for you how he tells it in some of these instances. This, when the angel is saying to him, tell me your name, Charles Wesley answers the angel in his version, I need not tell thee who I am, my misery and sin declare. Thyself has called me by my name. Look on thy hands and read it there. He said, you know my name already. If you've forgotten it, look at your hands. My name is written on his hands. Take that into the business of life. When you've come to a spot where you can't hold anything together, where your church, your personal life, your family, your studies, yourself, seems so out of control, and you wonder if anybody knows your name or anybody cares, and then say, I know who cares. He can't forget me. My name is written on his hands. This is the faith that made Methodism take hell captive. Tell the whole world that our name is written on the hands of our Savior. Five bleeding wounds he bears, Charles Wesley said, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. This is the one he was wrestling with. When he comes to the end of the wrestling, he knows who it is now with whom he's been wrestling. He says it thus, I know thee, Savior, who thou art, Jesus the feeble sinner's friend, nor wilt thou with the night depart, but stay and love me to the end. Thy mercies never shall remove, thy nature and thy name is love. I know your name, he said. You don't have to tell me. I've experienced your name. Your name is love. And then Charles Wesley goes on to describe what it's like now to go off with that hip that won't function anymore. Lame as I am, I take the prey. Hell, earth, and sin with ease overcome. I leap for joy, pursue my way, and as a bounding heart fly home through all eternity to prove thy nature and thy name is love. Now, this is a quite unreconstructed man with a dislocated, permanently disfigured hip. When with all of that you say, I leap for joy, something's happened to you for sure. And when you describe yourself as being like a bounding deer that flies above, well, people who 
have broken hips don't think about flying without the help of an airplane. But this is what has happened to Wesley. And this is what he knew, that though he had lost some of the mobility of his intelligence and his pride and his natural human arrogance, he flew better now than he did when he had full control. That's the kind of thing that Wesley wrote about. It was personal religion. It was experience with God. It was transforming power. But someone here is saying right about this point, but you said in the sermon title, this is a man who taught a nation to sing. It's nice that some rugged miners and some poor struggling street sweepers and their illiterate wives got saved. What did that do for a nation? Well, that's the rest of the story. And John Wesley would certainly want it told because John Wesley believed that there is no such thing as solitary religion. You don't stop with what's happened in your own soul. If the culture around you doesn't begin to change because you've been changed, then something has fallen short in the way you've been changed. The culture changes because we're changed. How much do we need in this culture to change it? I don't know except that our Lord said that we are salt and we are light. Salt is not a big thing, but it's powerful. Light in a darkened out room is so pathetic, except that when you light that match in a darkened out room, that light of a match suddenly changes the power and the disposition of the room. And that's who we are of people like that. Well, that's what they learned in Israel, that God was not just the God who appeared to Moses. God was a God who was working for the whole nation. So when they passed through the Red Sea and came out to the other side, Moses led them in a song, and then, God bless her, Miriam got together the women's chorus with tambourines to match. I don't know where they got the tambourines. That's one of the last things they took from Egypt, I guess. <laughs> they got their tambourines out. And I'm glad they did, that they had some musical instruments. They needed them now. How are you going to get into a new land with no musical instruments to sing with? So they got out their tambourines, and Miriam got them all to singing. It was a lovely thing, that thing that Miriam did. Uh, for one thing, it showed that God didn't just use Moses. In fact, that there wouldn't have been a Moses if it hadn't been for two women, his mother and his sister. And that his mother and his sister had learned that the waters aren't necessarily a place of destruction. They can be a venue for which the purposes of God can be done. And now that they'd come through the Red Sea, they knew it again, that the waters are not the end. The waters are just an opening of another door of God's purposes. And so the nation sang. That's what happened in, in England. They sang. I turn again to these words of uh, Luckock and Hutchison. It was a singing revival.
the Methodists were happy folk. They sang at meeting, on the way to meeting, on the way home from meeting, at home, at work, at leisure. In fact, that was one of the charges brought against them, that they sang too much. <laughs> I like that. I've imagined myself in some of those Methodist gatherings. They're singing these hymns that are packed so full of quality and content. And as they sing them, I see one of those rugged characters say to the fellow next to him, you know, I don't know much music, but I can tell you that you don't know how to carry a tune. And I hear the other man answering, I know I can't carry a tune, but I've been saved by the blood that I can't keep quiet, I'm sorry. And I hear another one saying to his friend, you know, I recognize what you're doing. I like your harmony. That's a whiskey tenor you have. And the man answers, you bet you it was. And you know the, you know the pub where I got my whiskey too. But it's not a whiskey tenor anymore. It's a hallelujah tenor. Join me on the next verse. These were people whose lives had been transformed and they sang it. Some historians say that you could go through almost any village in England where the Methodist revival had come and you could hear from one house to another the voices come out singing hymns, rejoicing in what they knew of God. Wesley wrote hymns that changed the temper of a nation. And he did it with some of the least likely people imaginable. Because when you have such a reality in your life, least likely people suddenly become magnificently effective. I, I tell you all that this morning because I believe in the songs we sing. I believe in these first-person songs that say, here's what he did for me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. I was doing it. I needed the Savior. I got a Savior. First person singular that then is caught up by a nation. I don't know what I think these days when I hear at some political event and reported on television and they're singing God Bless America. I don't know how significant that is. The cynic would say not very. Maybe they're right. And I don't know for sure what to think when a popular singer sings Amazing Grace and the crowd is thrilled. I don't know what's going on for sure. But I believe in a song. And I believe that God is bigger than the stuff we build around to shut down the kingdom. So when I hear what God did to a nation that was so poor financially for most of its people, where life was so corrupt, where the very structures of life were filthy and hopeless, that God started a thing happening through two unlikely Oxford scholars, one of whom wrote songs.
And when I read that, I say to myself, I wonder what God would do if we learned to sing again. Don't tell me it's impossible. For God's sake, don't think it's impossible. Who knows what God might do if we give God a chance. Amen.